This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Until very recently, most people probably had some idea who they thought Jesus to be. The Jews regarded him as a traitorous blasphemer. Muslims regard him as a prophet who was succeeded by Muhammad. Liberal Christians regard him as a great teacher who set a marvelous example of care for the poor and of self-sacrifice. Health and wealth preachers treat him as a cosmic dispensary of goodies. We might even wonder whether Pokemon-obsessed, distracted, late moderns are even asking much anymore who Jesus is. Do they even care? All the more reason to pay attention to what he said about himself. He did not leave us to guess or to wander about in darkness. John Fesco joins us for this episode of Office Hours to help us think more biblically about who Jesus is by considering what he said about himself. He is academic dean and professor of systematic theology and historical theology at Westminster Seminary, California. He's author of a number of books, including his latest, Who is Jesus? This title is found with other faculty titles at the bookstore, Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, John, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. It's good to be here with you. Well, you have a new volume about our Lord Jesus and particularly about what he said about himself. Given that there is this written record in the Gospel of John that seems to be relatively clear, Mm -hmm. obviously there are some ambiguities, but it seems to be clear enough. Why are there so many views about who Jesus was, and where do we begin to try to sort this out? Well, I think that, as you mentioned in your introduction, that a lot of times people come to the Bible with an idea as to who they want Jesus to be, or they have preconceived notions as to what Jesus should be. And I think that when you take a close look at the scriptures, particularly in this case, as I look at the Gospel of John and what Jesus says in his famous I am sayings, I am the bread of life, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth and the life, I am the true vine. You take all of those things into context, the resoundingly clear message is that Jesus declares, I am God in the flesh. I'm not a mere man. I'm not just one prophet among many others. I am the one who gives eternal life as well as even brings judgment against those who refuse to believe in me. And so you take a look at that, and the message, I think, is very clear. Why is it so important to do, as you've done in this book, to put Jesus in his Old Testament context? My perception of a lot of American Christians is that they may have some familiarity with their New Testaments, but their Old Testament is somewhat foreign territory. Maybe it's a source of character sketches, and they might know the creation narrative, and they might know a psalm or two or three or four, but after that, it's a little bit foreign. Yeah, I think that it's so important that we recognize that for Jesus and every other first century Jewish citizen, if you ask them to say, what is your Bible, they would have pointed 
pointed to the scrolls of the Old Testament or now in our day, just, you know, the Old Testament scriptures. And so those written documents present a context, and it's not just a literary context, but also a historical context. An illustration that I use in the book is I say that if a politician were to stride out onto the floor of the Senate wearing a chin curtain beard and a stovepipe hat and say four (laughs) score and seven years ago, we would not have... Well, at least I should say, I hope we would not have to guess very much as to who he was trying to invoke the image of and that people would naturally recognize that, well, this is Abraham Lincoln. You must not watch these men on the street interviews. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, we, we can hope. Yes, we can hope. And maybe, you know, if I dressed up in a Pokemon monster costume or something like that, people would have greater recognition. But the point is, is that there's a lot of context here politically within our country that many people would be able to identify the politician as invoking a particular particular set of ideas or our history and trying to invest his own political career with that type of imagery and that type of ideology. Well, at a much greater level, what Jesus comes to us in the New Testament, and particularly the Gospel of John, the image that I use is that he's wrapped in the robe of Old Testament prophecies, images, events that all point to the fact that he is God in the flesh and the fulfillment of God's promises to his people. So if you don't have a reasonably good sense of how the Old Testament sort of flows together and most of the great narratives and even some of the lesser known narratives, Mm -hmm. you're going to have a harder time understanding why Jesus said what he said and what the import was mm-hmm. of what he said. That's right. No, absolutely true. I think that you hit it right on the nail. We're talking to John Fesco about his latest book, Who is Jesus? And this volume is built around our Lord's I am statements. And I was just poking around on the computer machine and I typed in the Greek phrase, ego eimi, just to see how many times that shows up in the Johannine literature. And in some form or other, Mm -hmm. it shows up over 40 times. Mm -hmm. So this is a significant expression. And yet it has, as you've already suggested, an Old Testament background, Mm -hmm. particularly, maybe most famously, in the encounter of Moses with Yahweh Mm -hmm. in Exodus 3. Walk us through that a little bit. Yeah, there's Moses minding his own business, tending his sheep, and all of a sudden he notices that the bush is on fire, and he approaches, and uh, a voice from the bush says, take off your sandals for you stand on holy ground. And slowly but surely, God speaks to Moses from the bush, and he identifies himself as I am. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, that comes across as ego, a me. And so on one hand, we might not think that much of it, but where it really begins to take on some significance is when Jesus, in multiple places in John's gospel, begins to invoke that same phrase. He could just say, a me, which has the pronoun embedded in it, I am. But the fact that he says, ego me, he's emphasizing, no, I'm invoking this name. This is the divine name that God spoke to Moses. So when he says before Abraham was, ego me, I am, he is explicitly identifying himself with the God of the Old Testament. And he's saying, it's me, I'm here in the flesh. 
I don't know why, but this particular scene comes to mind. And I, you know, I, I know that our colleague Peter Jones wrote a whole book exposing the lies of the Da Vinci Code. But it's the idea that, you know, in Dan Brown's novel, supposedly the church, hundreds of years after Christ existed, turned Jesus into God and said, oh, he never said these things, but we need to make him into God. And this is what happened at the various church councils. And yet you go into the scriptures themselves, read against the background of the Old Testament, and the overwhelming evidence points to the fact that Jesus made these claims himself. So we have to uh, take them at face value in this respect and recognize that he's God in the flesh. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And our translations don't always, as good as they are, mm-hmm. don't always signal to us how often Jesus said that. I was just looking at John 4.26, mm-hmm. and in the Greek text, it says, I am mm-hmm. the one speaking to you. Mm-hmm. And you can find that throughout the gospel literature. So when Yahweh says to Moses, who shall I say sent me? Mm-hmm. Tell them I am sends you. Yes. That's a remarkable thing to say because the gods of the Egyptians, mm-hmm. which they were many, yes. right? sun and moon and all kinds of local deities, mm-hmm. those things are contingent, as the philosophers say. Mm-hmm. They might not be, and in fact, we know that they aren't really. Right. The God who speaks to Moses is the God who is. Right. He was in the beginning and he is now and he'll be in the future. He just is. Yeah. He's the only entity, if I can use that word, about whom that can be said. Yeah, no, absolutely. That he is. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think that, you know, you gave a little exposition there, and I think it's helpful to point out that when we see God say, I am, and it's been variously interpreted by all sorts of different Old Testament scholars, is that I am who I will be and all these different things. But I think the simplest explanation is the one that you just gave, which we also find in the opening of Revelation, you know, the one who was, who is, and is to come. And in fact, I think Greg Beale in his commentary on Revelation says that that is a miniature exposition of the divine name from Exodus 3.14. And all of those things are summarized in the name I am. So when Jesus says this, it's a very short phrase. It's a two-word phrase, but it's loaded with a lot of significance. Mm -hmm. And the Jews, at least some of them, understood the implication of what he was saying. Yes. Had he been speaking metaphorically or figuratively or in some other way, they wouldn't have been nearly as upset. But they got angry with him, particularly the Pharisees, Mm -hmm. got angry with him because they knew him to be saying, I am the same figure Mm -hmm. who appeared to Moses. Mm -hmm. And that's a central story Mm -hmm. in the life of Israel. Mm -hmm. So for Jesus to lay claim to that for himself is a huge claim. Yes. You know, I think that if we read, say, the Gospel of John attentively, I think a lot of people, at least in the church, as it's been my experience as I encounter, you know, people here and there, is that they say, I wish Jesus would have just come right out and said that, you know, I'm God. (laughs) And I tell him, well, he did. He did, exactly. (laughs) He did many, many times. I think we just have to read attentively and carefully. Carefully. And you find it in other portions of the scriptures, you know, Romans 9, 5, where Paul says he is God over all, blessed amen. But, you know, again, in the Gospel of John, it's just it repeatedly, it repeatedly comes up. And not only does he say it explicitly, but then he wraps himself in these Old Testament images that further buttress and confirm, you know, the claim that he makes about his identity. 
What are some of the many practical implications on which you touch in the book? What are some of the practical implications of meditating on Jesus' I am statements? For example, on page 7 you write, and I'm quoting, How often do we praise Christ simply for who he is? How much time do we give to the adoration and praise of our Lord and Savior? I thought that was a striking question. I think that if we liken prayer to a cathedral, well, then adoration should be the narthex or the entryway. And I think, unfortunately, and I'm as guilty as anybody of this, is that I rush through the narthex and into the main sanctuary and perhaps even past confession and thanksgiving and straight to supplication, you know, straight to the front of the church, if you will, and just start listing off the things that I need. But if we begin to meditate upon the fact that here is God incarnate, and this God incarnate is the same God who spoke worlds into existence. You know, he created simply by his word, and now he's condescended to us in the likeness, as the scriptures say, of sinful flesh, though he himself was not personally sinful. Then we can begin to appreciate the heights from which he's come, the depths to which he's condescended, and then hopefully those truths will resonate in our hearts and begin to produce the fruit of praise, adoration, that you see so often in the Psalms. You know, the psalmist most certainly brings his needs before the Lord, but it's always adorned with a healthy serving of praise and adoration, just simply acknowledging God as creator, as redeemer, just his very existence apart from anything else. I'm just looking now at John 6, verse 18 or so, where we see the disciples in a boat, and the sea becomes rough, the wind is blowing, and you know, when they had rowed three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, mm-hmm. and Jesus says to them, I am, mm-hmm. right, which we translate in the ESV, it is I, but what he says is, I am, mm-hmm. don't be afraid, which there's two remarkable things about that. When the I am appears before Moses, the most reasonable thing to do is to be afraid. And yet the other striking thing is that in this context, they need the I am to save them. Mm -hmm. And he comes to them not as a judge, but as a savior. Mm -hmm. So another practical implication of meditating on and coming to a deeper appreciation of Jesus as the I am is that he's worthy of our trust. Not to uh, allegorize this passage, but I'll do, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it anyway. So uh, don't do this at home. But you know, we can learn from the disciples' reaction that you know, when we're afraid, we have a savior yeah. who is able to calm storms. Yes, and he is the I am. Yeah, I think that, you know, as I reflected upon this passage and I listened to people talk about it, you know, over the years, this is one of the common moves that I find people making is that they're impressed by the miracle. And I don't want to diminish the awe that we have when we read of such miracles. And in particular, you know, you think of children as they reflect upon it that, wow, you know, walking on water. And I've been to the beach before as a child and watched other children now at the beach as an adult where they say, I'm going to try to do it. (laughs) (laughs) And they, they run as fast as they can and obviously sink like a rock. So I don't want to diminish that aspect. But at the same time, you look again at the Old Testament and according to Job, it's only Yahweh who tramples down the waves. And so when you take the fact that here's Jesus trampling down the waves, and in combined with that, he says, I am. And he tells the disciples essentially, in not so many words, trust me, that here's the creator. And that's why I think that when he got in the boat, 
they were even more fearful after all of these events transpired than they were initially at the stormy waters themselves. And that, I think, is a pretty big testimony to the fact that all of a sudden, I think they had this eye-opening realization as to who they were dealing with, which is at the same time an amazing exposure to the transcendence of the Messiah. But at the same time, I can't help but they thought that, what's he doing here in our boat? <laughs> Why is he here as a mere man? And so, you know, this amazing combination of transcendence and eminence that, you know, ultimately spells our redemption and our salvation. Even as you said, even as we face our own trials and tribulations, we can trust that we know that the creator of the heavens and earth has us in his hands. For us as Christians, especially those who actually believe the Reformers got it right, it was nothing short of the recovery of the gospel out of the darkness of the Middle Ages. Mike Horton for Westminster Seminary, California. There's nothing more important than getting the gospel right and getting the gospel out. Judged by those terms, the Reformation was the greatest recovery of Christianity and missionary expansion in the history of the church since the Apostle Paul. The Reformation is important to Westminster Seminary, California, because we purport to be trying to make experts in the Bible. Scripture is our focus here. At the center of the biblical message from Genesis to Revelation is God's redemption of sinners in Christ, the gospel. The Reformation not only clarified that message, but also was a flowering of biblical scholarship. Westminster takes the Reformation seriously only because it takes the scriptures seriously. And the Reformation was one of the greatest recoveries of scripture in the history of the church. We are reformed not because we want to belong to a tribe, but because we believe that this is actually the riches of scripture for the whole church. And it's not something that we possess, but something that possesses us. WSCAL.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His gospel, and His church. Theologically, this is a good rebuke, I guess, a strong rebuke to those, for example, our liberal Christian friends Mm -hmm. who would reduce Jesus to a prophet, a teacher, a good example, Mm -hmm. who manifested concern for the poor, all of which is true. No one's questioning that. Right. But to reduce him to that really does not do justice to our Lord's own self-conception. You're absolutely right. I think one of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes or statements that he makes is the so-called trilemma, you know, not a dilemma of two things, but rather three things. And he famously posits this in his book, Mere Christianity, where he says, we have three choices with Christ's claims from John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but my me. He says, either Jesus is a lunatic on the level of someone who believes himself to be a poached egg, which I'm not sure why he said poached egg, but that's what Lewis says. So, you know, in other words... It's, a, it's an English Yes, thing. I guess so. So, you know, he's a total loon because who but a crazy man would say, I am the only way to God. Or secondly, he's a liar on the level of a demon because if he wasn't crazy, well, then he must have been lying through his teeth if he was to claim that I am the only way when indeed he actually wasn't. And both of those things were alleged against him in his own life, right? He was alleged to have been crazy, and he was alleged to have done what he did by demons. Absolutely. And the counter evidence of that is overwhelming. In fact, the miracles testify that he wasn't a liar, and the fact that he commanded demons, sent them into pigs, and off the cliff, 
demonstrates that, in fact, he was not any such thing. Yeah, which leaves the third alternative, which is he truly is who he claims to be, which means he is the only way. And as Lewis says in that passage from Mere Christianity, then we have to fall on our faces and worship him as God in the flesh. On the one hand, I love the resistless logic, but on the other hand, it really does deal truthfully and soberly with those claims. And we can't claim that, oh, well, the church later added that in. There's no textual evidence whatsoever to support that claim. And so, you know, based upon the objective methods of textual criticism, we can say, no, there's no dispute over this statement of Jesus. You really don't want to let Dan Brown and that ilk do your thinking for you. You need to read the Bible for yourself. Absolutely. It's not that difficult. If the listener doesn't have a Bible, you can find them online Mm -hmm. easily. The English Standard Version, which is a fine English translation, is available for free online. There are apps you can download to your phone that are free, very well designed, easy to read, clear. There are other good translations that you can find as well. Absolutely. So the listener should read the Bible for himself to see for himself Jesus saying these things. That's right. Because we live in a time when there's a lot of spoken and I think unspoken pressure to get along and to make peace at the expense of truth. Mm -hmm. And Jesus said, I did not come to make peace. I came with a figurative sword, not a literal sword, Mm -hmm. a figurative sword, to divide. Mm -hmm. And the truth has that dividing power, if you will, or effect. Absolutely. I would tell people in my church when I was a pastor, we all like to be relativists, Unless, of course, say we're dealing with medicine and brain surgery. Or money. (laughs) Or money, yeah, Yeah. exactly. (laughs) Who really knows, you know, am I getting paid $40,000 a year or $50,000? I mean, it's all relative. That's right. Well, uh, actually, no, we have a pay stub here. I have a contract. That's right. So it's interesting how precise we can be when it comes to stuff that we think really matters. Yeah, absolutely. salvation... Yeah. Wow. Now all of a sudden everybody becomes agnostic. Yeah. Who could possibly? No, of course. We could actually read a little history Uh and see that Muhammad is a 7th century figure, right? And read a little bit about his context and history and the things that he said and did. And suddenly the picture is a little clearer. And it's not quite what we're led to believe, that all these religions are essentially the same and -hmm. and they're all ways to God. Jesus isn't having any of that. No, absolutely not. In a pantheon of many, he is one. He is the one through whom we have access to the Father. You're listening to Office Hours, and we're talking with John Fesco about his new book, Who is Jesus? In the introduction, I mentioned the health and wealth approach to Jesus. And you point out that at least implicitly, I'm not saying that you were addressing this directly, but implicitly, there's nothing new about the health and wealth error. Mm -hmm. Some people have always followed Jesus with their stomachs. Mm -hmm. How did Jesus respond to those in his day during his earthly ministry who were, as you say, thinking more with their stomachs than with their intellect? I think that on the heels of Jesus feeding the 5,000 with that uh, amazing miracle, he goes and departs and goes to the other side of the uh, sea there, and the crowds sought him. But it's like I write in the book that they sought him with a thin veil of piety covering their true intentions, which they wanted more food. And on the one hand, it's understandable. You wake up, you're hungry. Maybe especially a lot of the poor in that day did not eat on a very regular three-square-a-day basis. But nevertheless, Jesus challenged them and you know, basically said, look, you're looking for bread. You're looking for physical bread. But I tell you, you have to pay attention as to who I am. You know, My heavenly Father gave the Israelites manna in the wilderness. But 
but that manna, that bread perished. He says, I want to give you the manna that never perishes. I want to give you the bread that gives eternal life. So he talks about those things in John chapter 5 as he's pointing them to himself, basically saying, you have to believe in me. And in particular, I think in that whole bread of life discourse, that's one of the drumbeats that John captures so incessantly and repeatedly is the importance of faith. Believe in me, believe in me. And as Augustine, you know, famously said, if you have believed, you have eaten. And in that sense, that's where Christ was pointing them to. Because while a meal is a good thing, he wanted them to look past their rumbling bellies and look into the need of their sin-darkened souls so that they would look to Christ alone as the true manna from heaven. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Sometimes Jesus is presented as if he were a victim of circumstances beyond his control. Mm -hmm. But on page 45, you write, we should not miss the all-important point in this statement that Jesus is not a victim. Rather, Jesus lays down his life voluntarily Mm -hmm. and because of his great love for his sheep. Think with us for a moment about connecting that reality that Jesus was in control of his own suffering and death, that he laid down his life voluntarily, and he did it as the I am. I'm looking at John 8, 28 and 29, Mm -hmm. and Jesus says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know, and the Greek text says, that I am. Mm -hmm. You know, the ESV again says, I am he, but Jesus says, you will know that I am. What a remarkable thing to and how paradoxical. Martin Luther could have written this, right? Sure, yeah. oh, Martin Luther paid attention to John here yeah. because Jesus seems to be saying, you really will understand that I am when I am on the cross. You know, I remember reading a passage out of Schleiermacher and— uh, well, That's Sch- never good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the listener needs to, to <laughs> mark that well. John, was, John's a professional, and he does this stuff for a living, but you might want to just that's right. give that guy a pass. <laughs> Careful. Don't try these things at home, friends. And I remember where he said, well, Jesus is giving his life wasn't really necessary— It's unfortunate that it happened, something to that effect, but that it wasn't really necessary for him to give his life, which gives the impression that Jesus was kind of just uh, carried along by the crowd and he had no control over any of it. But it's one of the points that confirms his identity as the life-giving God, the great I am, where he says, hey, I will lay my life down and I will take it back up again. Only God can do that because we might be able to a certain degree control when we let our life go if we decide, you know, sinfully to end it. But even then, we still might not be able to carry out our plans as we hope. Whereas Jesus, you know, was letting them know that, no, I'm in control of this situation. You know, how many times did the Pharisees want to take him? but for whatever reason were unable to or couldn't because the timing wasn't right. It wasn't according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, as Peter later says in the book of Acts in his Pentecost sermon. And then the fact that he dies and then takes his life back up again, again, further confirms his identity as the great I am. So like you say, yeah, when he says, I am, it's quite significant and amazing, I think really in the best sense of the term. So meditating on this and thinking about these things and working through these I am statements in their Old Testament context, in their New Testament context, this isn't just an academic intellectual exercise. This is something that has profoundly personal consequences. The listener needs to be encouraged and will be encouraged that Jesus is God the Son incarnate Mm -hmm. and that God the Son came for us and was incarnate for us, born of a virgin 
obeyed in our place, suffered for us, poured himself out, as you note in the book, mm-hmm. as Paul says in Philippians 2. Not that he gave up his deity, right. but that he came as the suffering servant mm-hmm. and poured himself out as an offering, mm-hmm. a drink offering for us before the Lord. So these are powerful, literal historical truths, but also spiritual truths that have an effect, to be sure, but also an effect. Mm-hmm. So as you preached these originally, and then you worked through them again for the purposes of this book, how did it affect affect you personally? I think for me, one of the most powerful mental ideas that really made a deep and lasting impression, and one that I try regularly to think about, is in the 12th chapter of John, particularly, I think, right around verse 41, where John invokes Isaiah 6, and it's in the face of the Jewish further rejection. And so John writes in John 12, 39, Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. And then John makes this amazing statement. He says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. And within the context there, the pronouns refer to Jesus. So you begin to put the pieces of the puzzle together and you realize that that day in the temple, Isaiah saw the pre-incarnate Christ seated upon the throne. And it's a glory that drove Isaiah to call curses upon his head because he realized how sinful he was. And here, by our standards, is perhaps a very righteous man. And yet he's worried about his own uncleanness. And so you think to those heights... And then reflect upon the depths of the cross as Christ hangs there, most likely stripped of all his clothing, as the soldiers gamble for his robe, and as the people around him, most of the people around him, hurled insults at him. That's profound. It really has left a deep impression upon my heart, and it makes me grateful for the depths to which God in the flesh has condescended to save a miserable sinner like me. That, I think, is hopefully one of the truths that will impress upon your heart, not only your need for Christ, but then in the end, the importance of worshiping our incarnate Lord. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.